So this evening's speaker is, or this evening's session, is going to be chaired by Professor James McLaurin. So James is a philosopher of science with a particular interest in computing and information science, particularly AI and its impact on humanity. He's also interested in life science, especially ecology and evolutionary biology. He's the organiser of the University of Otago's AI Intelligence and Society Group, as well as a primary investigator on the New Zealand Law Foundation's funded AI Intelligence and Law project. So with that, say Norea, Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenatato Katoa, and I'll hand over to James. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so I'm James, uh, and so first up, a disclaimer, you come for a science festival, you have in fact got two philosophers in front of you, and one scientist, but I think you'll see why uh, in a little while. Uh, so I am the chair, which means nominally I'm in charge of these two, and it really is nominally, I've got no power over them. Uh, I'm going to introduce them first. We're each going to say a little bit about uh, different aspects of AI and jobs and work. Uh, and then there'll be a bit of general chat amongst ourselves, uh, which I will attempt to referee, and then there'll be lots of time for Q&A. So please, as you're going through, think about questions, think about things you want to know. You might have come here with questions you want to ask. So, without further ado, uh, I want to in in introduce three people. Now that's sad, because I've only got two people. And the reason that I want to introduce three people is because Bryony Blackmore was to have been here tonight, and unfortunately, circumstances have conspired against her. She's fine, if you know Bryony, but she can't be here tonight. Uh, so Bryony's one of my PhD students who's working on AI and uh, responsibility. Uh, but we have the fabulous uh, Daniel Guppy to my left. Uh, who is also a PhD candidate in the philosophy program. Uh, Daniel is working on the relationship between artificial intelligence and work, in particular the nature of work, problems that AI presents to work and hence to society at large, possible solutions to problems that arise. So he's got a big task ahead of him. Uh, he's also uh, he also has a physics degree, so he's sort of is a scientist. Uh, and in a previous life, or in a previous bit of this life, he was a science teacher. He was a physics teacher. Uh, and so one of his other loves is uh, science communication. Uh, so, Daniel, down the end, Professor David Ayres is a professor of computer science. Uh, his research spans topics including cloud computing, uh, data security, how to build efficient and trustworthy software systems, Lots of his uh, interdisciplinary collaborations explore potential social impacts of computing and how to mitigate risks that emerge from developing technology. And we are all together along with a whole bunch of uh, other people at the University of Otago, part of this amorphous blog that we call the Centre for Artificial Intelligence and Public Policy, uh, which consists of computer scientists and philosophers, and sociologists and economists, all sorts of people who are interested in working out uh, what AI, what an AI-fueled world is going to be like. So, without further ado, uh, I'm going to throw to David, who is going to explain to you all what this new form of AI that everybody's talking about is all about. Over to you, David. Thank you very much, James. So. I get to the disclaimer that I don't normally work most on AI, so it's not my fault. 
uh, but I do know lots of people who do work on AI, so I can explain some of the history. And what I want to start with is a very, very, very brief history of AI technology so that we can see what's causing the acceleration of technology recently. At the very beginning of AI, which was many decades ago, this has been a problem in computer science that people have done research on for a very long time, AI was what I would describe as being symbolic. It was about rules that you could look at and understand. The machine learning or how a machine was going to play a game of chess. The rules were intelligible. You could look at them, you could understand how it was deciding to make some particular decision. That proceeded for a long time and people tried to tackle language problems looking at sort of universal grammar and whether they could kind of nut it all out. There was then a very, very big shift to what I'd say the next major generation of AI was, which was statistical AI. So when we started getting to the point where we had big data available, absolutely massive amounts of information that you could simply process with statistics to decide how to react, we ended up with a generation of AI when people write the software, but it's no longer the case that you can understand what the rationale is behind how a particular decision gets made. So the AI learns weights in a system, the kind of neural weights, for example, that are trained from the task of filling in gaps in sentences and looking at missing parts of pictures, and it figures out some way of representing the kind of, for want of a better word, knowledge that then is encoded in that system. But it's interesting that we really cannot understand how it is representing that information. When we look at GPT, which is leading towards chat GPT, which is certainly something which we've probably all heard of if we're here tonight, one of the key advances that's happened very recently, and it's sort of an exponential speed increase in how quickly some of this technology is developing, first the T. T stands for transformer, and a few years ago, particularly Google pushed this out, we're talking like within the last five years, a technique that meant that the way that they could handle sequences of information, like the order of words in a sentence, they were able to massively increase the speed at which you could do the training necessarily, necessary to kind of do the kind of word-filling, gap-filling exercises that are necessary to train the weights that exist within a neural network. This really caused a surge in AI because it meant that the training speed meant you could throw lots more data at these systems, but also people figured out ways of, for example, working with imagery rather than just text. We ended up getting this real emergence of a multi-modality. So multi-mode, you could have one AI-trained system that could understand ways of depicting things in pictures and text within one set of weights. We really don't understand how it represents that, and that is an interesting kind of situation. When it comes to the P in GPT, that stands for pre-trained. It turned out these systems get this emergent property of understanding things, which can translate between words and pictures, which is kind of useful. But the G is generative. And that's one of the things we've seen recently, where these technologies can produce creative works in some particular style from prompting. So you give it some starting point and the system will use its weights to figure out how it's going to complete whatever it's actually going to do with that particular system. When it comes to the impact to work, um, I think that, again, trying to just very, very vaguely keep to time, and this is going to be very vague in terms of keeping to time, um, GPT is very good at shortening things, but I'm, I'm not so good at that. I'm not yet AI on that front. When it comes to sort of the work impact, one of the points I find interesting is the performance of something like ChatGPT is extremely good in many examination contexts. 
but the system is actually just trying to predict the next word in a sequence. That's all it does. Now, of course, if you've got an exam question, you know, it might be that a noun is a useful thing to fit into the part of speech required for the answer. So you'll pick a noun rather than a verb. That will give you a higher score, so you'll use it if you're the AI looking for your different options. But of course, if you actually know the answer, then it's not just any noun, it's actually the noun that's the best noun for that particular place. This is how knowledge has emerged from these systems. It's just from this guessing the next word. But when it comes to the high performance of the, particularly ChatGPT, looking at the GPT-4 model, the more recent one, it blitzes things like the bar exam, uh, getting you know, passing offers, being able to kind of get into law measured by that particular test. But of course, I don't think we've got the situation where all lawyers are suddenly going to be replaced by artificial intelligence. And there's an interesting splitting point. You know, that's one route you could look at, which I don't think will happen in terms of the impact of work. The other is that, in fact, we could have the positive benefit of these systems extending the reach of the efficiency with which lawyers can provide law to a larger group of people that actually want access to that. So an interesting exploration, which I suspect we'll return to tonight, is how much are these tools going to enrich human endeavor that exists already in terms of extending their reach versus how much are we talking about this revolution that sort of removes all areas of work and has a really significant impact. Briefly, one other area, just returning to my own personal experience, we've done a survey of what ChatGPT did for work in our undergraduate courses. And in first year, ChatGPT does extremely well. It can get very high marks on our first year computer science. However, we've got an answer for that. We don't let our first year computer scientists use the internet during their examinations. They, we never have, even some before the GPT times, because we actually are going through this sort of rote learning at the beginning of their papers where we want everyone to be normalized as to their background in computing. So it doesn't really make you know, it's not that we want to test them on a kind of knowledge exercise that these AI tools can really win. They're off the internet doing practical tests in that first year. Come second year, we've also not seen an impact from ChatGPT because we introduced teamwork. And if you're going to try to use GPT to kind of cheat on an exam in a team, it's going to be, require so much coordination between your team members to figure out how you would have asked ChatGPT to give you your bit in this thing. You're going to have to explain the whole team structure to the AI, by which time you will have learned so much, you can just do the work. It's easier. And so we found that in our second year, that we invited students to use GPT. It's helped them with some of the kind of writing tasks where they need to present written material. Computer scientists, not necessarily. That's maybe not their number one priority. So we've welcomed that. Some people mentioned they used it, others didn't. We don't really mind. Our assessment doesn't care about whether or not they're actually producing sort of better written text in that sense. And by third year, the students are picking their own projects. And again, given that we try to provide formative assessment as they're going through their paper, anyone who can figure out how to prompt GPT to give them 10% of the progress they should have made through their assignment so that they can then get feedback on it and then try to explain that to the AI. Again, we're at this situation where it's just two arms length right now. So for me, that kind of, despite all the fear that happened at the beginning of the year in terms of this impact, 
we've seen nothing but a positive impact in terms of how we're doing things in computer science at the moment. The flip side, though, is educationally, we do still have the luxury of being able to spend a lot of time with our students and have a kind of rich engagement with them. So because we're not trying to churn them through a factory sort of production line, that's where we can look at producing the computer scientists we actually want to go out into society. They understand how to interact with other people in teams and all of that sort of development. That's been a really interesting shift where we just... The whole department has basically decided that we haven't had really any negative impact yet from AI. This may change, and again, I'm happy to try to answer Daniel's apparently very challenging questions that I haven't seen about what the implications of all this will be. But for now, I'll stop there. Thank you very much, David. So you get the hang of it. Um, can I just quick box pop? Who's, who's typed something into chat GPT? <laughs> Everybody just raised their hand a little bit. It's like, yeah, I, I have, but I'm a little embarrassed about it. I did do it. Okay, good. Um, so, how smart is it, and what effects might it have on jobs? So I, I just want to start with a little test. So, um, there's, there's a, a big industry of people trying to make machines smarter, and there's a slightly smaller industry of people trying to invent more and more tests to work out how smart the teams are. So this test comes from a, a paper called Sparks of AGI. So you type into ChatGPT's prompt box, here's a problem for you, ChatGPT. You've got some objects. You've got a laptop, some chewing gum, a book, a nail, and four eggs. I want you to tell me how to balance these on top of one another in a stable configuration. So I'll give you two seconds to think, well, I would put that, no, okay. So it's not an easy, it's not an easy question. So when you ask ChatGPT, the answers are terrible. It's like, stand up the nail and then balance an egg on the, no, yeah, wrong, so that's not gonna work. So six months later, GPT-4, you put the same prompt into GPT-4, and it says, well, you've got to use the chewing gum as an adhesive. So pull the chewing gum into four bits, then put the book on the table, and then put a piece of chewing gum at each corner of the book, and then nestle an egg into a piece of chewing gum, and then gently lay the laptop on the top, and put a nail just lying down on the top of the laptop. So it's just finding the next word in the sentence all the time. Put the, what's the next word? Nail, what's the next word? On top. But in order to answer the next question, it needs to know a huge amount about the world. So that's really been the sort of amazing thing that we've discovered in the last year. All right, so what's it going to do for jobs and work? I work a bit with people in government, and some of you may be in government, um, if you are, you're probably familiar with productivity as a measure. So lots of people are, are interested in productivity and is, is, uh, are systems like this going to make us more productive? So I want to just tell you about two studies quickly. And, and I have said this is me channeling Bryony. I don't do it very well, but this is what Bryony is going to talk about. So I'm going to try and channel Bryony. Okay, so um, first study is a general productivity. Um, both these studies are from the last month. I mean, in this generative AI world, everything's happened since Christmas. So all the studies are brand new. Uh, so here's the first study, uh, both American. Uh, in the first one, 444 white-collar workers, all people with university degrees in a range of jobs, split them into two groups. 
one group you give an introduction to chat GPT. Like you just give them a page that says there's this thing and people find it handy and it's got prompts and some people use it for some work done and just right like that. So if these people weren't given ChatGPT, they weren't told to download it, they weren't told to use it, they were just told about it. And then everybody in both groups was asked to complete some tasks. So there were 11 different types of work represented in the 444 people. Uh, so they had tasks specific to each piece of work and they were incentivized, I don't know what they were offering them, but there was an incentive to do the work well and to do it quickly. So did just having had an introduction about ChatGPT, did that make a difference? So the group that had had the introduction did their work 20% uh, faster, 40% better. They found it more enjoyable. There were things that they didn't like doing that ChatGPT was doing for them. So that was a good thing. The people who were most junior and hence less skilled, got more advantage from using ChatGPT because we're training the system on competent users, good answers to questions, and hence it pushed everybody up. So it gave people a, a more even level of performance. So you can see how this would work, all right? I mean, if you're a white collar worker, you know that there's all sorts of forms and meetings and nonsense that you've got to do and it's sort of boring and but it's, it takes some cognitive load and so, but not, not incredibly difficult work. So was it just doing that? Can it do more than that? I mean, that would be good, but can it do more than that? Right, here's study two. Doctors. So how would we test this with medical advice? So they went to an online forum, a health forum, where people write in and say, I've got this problem, and describe the problem, and I, I want some help. Do I need to go to a doctor? What, what's going on? Uh, so they took 135 questions from this forum that were all sort of sensible questions, well-formed questions, so they judged whether they were, you know, answerable medical questions. And then they gave all those questions to a, a group of uh, physicians, and they also gave them to ChatGPT. So I hasten to add, this is just ChatGPT, right? It's not designed for medical purposes, it's this very general purpose thing. It's not GPT-4. It's not the one that can do the eggs and the laptop trick. It's just it's the okay one. So then they got a whole lot of answers to these questions, both from the people and from the AI. And then they gave all those answers, blindly, to a group of healthcare professionals and said, which one of the, which, for each case, which question, which answer is the most accurate and which answer is the most empathetic? You know what's coming. 79% of the time, they preferred ChatGPT's output, and in general, they said it was both more accurate and more empathetic. Now, we've decided not to do like a slideshow tonight, but I could have put up the graph, and if I did put up the graph, the title of the graph would be, it wasn't even close. <laughs> pretty, pretty astounding. Uh, now, I'm not saying, <laughs> don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's going to replace doctors, or it's safe, or it's ready to use, or any of these things. This is just talking about its scope, and the sort of, the promise, and potential, I guess. And that's just productivity. We could have looked at other things. So, so as many of you will know, there's a race on at the moment to try and produce fully autonomous cars. That's, that's heating up. 
That's getting pretty close. And on some measures, already safer than people. People are arguing about the measures, and I can talk to you later about why they argue about the measures. But of course, if we make cars that are much safer than people, then never mind the productivity. That's a huge benefit. Okay, so that was me being Briony. How did I do? That's <laughs> great. In general, not so good at being Briony. Okay, all right, this is me being me. Can you tell the difference? All right. Um, so, I just want to talk a little bit about sort of bigger picture, like economics and macroeconomics sort of ideas. So the first one comes from an economist called Darren Achimoglu, and it's the, this difference between technology being enabling and technology being replacing. So my laptop is enabling for me. It helps me to do my job. It makes me better at my job. It makes life easier and quicker. The checkout machine at the supermarket replaces a supermarket worker. It's not enabling somebody. You just don't need as many people. Um, this makes it sound as if we just want lots of enabling and no replacing. Actually, the, there's, there's overlap here. So if the technology in question enables me, like makes me twice as productive, then obviously my employer's got a, an interesting problem. Is she going to make twice as many widgets or is she going to have half as many people? So it, it, you, you can be both enabling and replacing. Nonetheless, we want enabling more than we want replacing. Um, so there's a nice paper published by a Harvard economist called Eric Brynjolfsson called The Turing Trap. And he's talking about exactly this distinction. And he's talking about you know, the technology that, that David was explaining to you. And there's a sort of trajectory that that technology has taken that I guess we didn't expect 10 years ago, which is that we would build something that was very good at simulating people. I mean, that's what ChatGPT is. It's really good at seeming like a person. Well, because it's really good at simulating people, excited computer scientists are all trying to see how far that goes. And so there's a big push in the simulation direction. Well, the simulation direction is the replacing direction. So says Eric, we need to turn that bus around. We need to stop uh, doing that stuff. Uh, he says that if companies and developers can stay away from the mentality of thinking that humans aren't needed, it's all going to be fine. There, you heard it here first. So anyway, if you want anything to talk about at the end, maybe that would be a thing we could talk about at the end. Um, so one more paper that I want to talk about is a paper called uh, GPTs of GPTs. What? That sounds like a typo. So generative pre-trained transformers are general purpose technologies. And a general purpose technology is something that has an extraordinary scope of application. So think the production line, or the automobile, uh, or electricity. They're all general purpose technologies. And general purpose technologies have a, a, a particular kind of trajectory and a particular set of effects on the environments that they appear in. Um, one of the things is that they're very unpredictable, obviously because they've got such broad scope. So at the start of the 20th century, 
when you were just starting to get, you know, motor cars really appearing in lots of places because the motor car, you know, crashed into uh, the invention of the production line and Henry Ford was pumping them out at a great rate of knots. And you might have thought, okay, so this is it. Now we need lots of mechanics and maybe some car salespeople. And that'll do. But of course that wouldn't do because transportation turned out to be huge. So the motor car enabled a change in the way we build cities, the way people live, the way people work. So all sorts of things came down the pipe after the motor car that we wouldn't have guessed at the time. And similarly, with the rise of AI, you've had a lot of people saying, we need lots of coders. Now, don't get me wrong, we need lots of coders, but that's not the end of the story. We don't know where the story's going to lead us at the moment but it's going to lead us to, to lots of places. Um, I guess one of the things that is beneficial with AI being a general purpose technology is that it has a great potential to produce new types of work. I don't think there's any doubt that some types of work are going to get less common or maybe less valuable. Um, but more types of work will come along and GPTs produce lots more types of work. One more thing about GPTs, and then I'll finish, is that they're challenging for companies because they require companies to, you know, turn on a dime to produce their goods and services in very different ways. A good example of um, this sort of transition at the moment is the move from petrol cars to electric cars. They look much the same, but to build, they're nothing alike. And so it's really challenging for existing companies to turn themselves into electric car companies. If you're a new electric car company, you're away laughing. If you're an existing company, much tougher. So AI might have those sorts of effects on jobs and work. Cheery? <laughs> so, so, you know, it can sound a little bit dumb. So I'm going to leave you on a high note, and I'm going to pass on to Daniel. So here's my high note. Go back 300 years. What were we all doing? We were all farmers, roughly speaking. I mean, everybody was trying to make enough to eat. There are a few soldiers, a few other people, but, but to a first approximation, you know, everybody was a farmer. Today, to a first approximation, nobody's a farmer. My apologies if there's a farmer in the room. I don't, mean, I don't think there are none, but there are very few. I mean, it's a, it's a really small proportion of the workforce. And yet, we have more to eat. We have pretty much full employment. We earn more. So... Let's not panic. <laughs> um, the big question, I guess, is, you know, is it going to be different this time? Is AI different? And what would we do if it was? How's that for a segue? And now, Daniel. Cool. Um, yeah, thanks, James, and thanks for being here tonight. I'm excited to be presenting. Um, I feel like I might be less eloquent than these experienced lecturers next to me, but I'll do my best. Um, so I see my role here is to highlight some of the kind of policy solutions, the what do we do about this. Um, so first I just wanted to talk about the broader scope of AI and regulation. So uh, like worldwide, um, AI is being considered like internationally. So for example, the... EU is uh, currently negotiating their AI Act, um, and this is about AI creation and deployment, essentially. Um, and they have one 
well, they have plenty of interesting parts, but one interesting part um, is they have a risk matrix there which includes four categories. One of which is unacceptable risks, which is AI that we just shouldn't deploy. Um, the idea being that we don't want potentially really harmful technologies to be a ubiquitous part of society, available to everyone, etc., etc. Uh, there's also a movement to, it's kind of whispery at the moment, to create international cooperation on how to handle some of the problems that AI brings. Um, and I think cooperation is a, a really good thing that we should be supporting. Um, but that kind of legislation is at the back end of what we're discussing tonight. And we're more at the front end of, one, once this uh, AI is out in society, how is it going to impact on jobs and work? Uh, so, as James mentioned, AI is likely to shape up jobs, perhaps uh, replace or partially replace, change or enable jobs. Uh, there could be more jobs available from AI. We just don't know. Um, but I think one key way we can think about AI is related to humans. So what productive value do humans add to jobs? Um, if we think about this previously, the, uh, sorry, the Industrial Revolution uh, helped us with a lot of mechanical problems and energy problems and some resourcing problems uh, as well as globalization. These problems have been solved by technology and now AI is verging on the cognitive or intellectual domain and there are problems to be solved there too. Uh, so AI could do a lot of things, uh, some of them extremely beneficial and some of them we should be wary of. Um, but some of the amazing things that it could do is it could support individuals to do plenty of things on their own. So uh, you could quickly write something that you want to get written up. You could set up your own website, you could do programming, uh, ChatGPT is really good at programming, or illustration through some other AI tools. There's plenty of enabling things that AI will be able to do. And some of these are excellent, and some of them are in the works that we don't even know about, or might be years to come. That would be pretty revelatory for um, people who are wanting to um, use AI for a variety of applications. So I think, Regardless of how toughly, toughly we regulate AI, we're still going to get plenty of different AI tools in the box, um, and this will lead to a lot of economic productivity, is my guess. Um, so with this huge boost in productivity that we may get, uh, this would mean more resources produced, and thus, in theory, available for everyone. Um, so if we have this extra productivity, one question is, where does this go? Uh, this raises concerns about is it just going to go to the top, is there going to be lots of inequality, or is it going to be distributed, we're not sure. So on jobs taken, so there's plenty of reports out there now spanning from like 2013 or so till, uh, till now about how AI is going to take jobs and a lot of them have different measures but we might be looking in the 20 to 80% of task time taken by, uh, taken by AI or significantly impacted by AI in some way. Uh, but these are really just guesses. We're not sure, but there is evidence behind a bunch of these reports. Um, so this could cause some labor displacement, and we should be prepared for this. So what we want is options for people whose jobs are going to be replaced or disrupted. Uh, as I said, we can't predict exactly where these disruptions are going to be, uh, and thus we can't have fine-grained policy um, about uh, solutions to this. Instead, we're going to have to look at broader policy to deal with these problems. So, in general, what could we do? And in general, what is our goal here? So, we might think of a variety of goals that we might have in this space. Is it full employment? Is it maximise GDP? What should be our goal here? Uh, well, New Zealand kind of has an answer to this in a way. 
we care a lot about well-being, so this could be one of our focuses. So we could say something like, good policy in this space sets conditions for well-being. This could be a really good opportunity economically and for our citizens. Um, yeah, so uh, with this gain in productivity, we might have at one end some like amazing abundance and at the other end at least some increase in productivity. So what do we do with these productivity gains? What are the responses? So there are three key responses that I think are worth discussing here and considering. These are, are I think, the three main responses that people could raise. First is an interesting one, a UBI, a universal basic income. So this is the idea that everyone in society gets some nominal amount of money per week or per month. Um, we have something like this in New Zealand already actually. This is called superannuation. We just don't apply it to everybody. But we could think about extending it to everybody. Uh, it does cost a lot, but potentially it would solve some of these problems. Uh, another consideration about what we can do is retraining. So retraining is an interesting one because jobs are going to move around a lot. So whether someone potentially retrains in some different area because their job was taken by AI or partially replaced by that, uh, partially replaced by an AI or their company made some decision that affected uh, their work. If they go into retraining, could be a year, could be two, then they go into a new industry and they're not certain if that industry is going to be affected too. So retraining could be a big part of the answer, but it may not be the whole answer. Um, and I should say these solutions are uh, um, not just choose one, they could be all of them. Um, another option would be reduced working hours or a shorter work week which would mean more leisure, which sounds nice to me. Um, and then lastly, how do we pay for all this? So there's one kind of obvious answer, which is taxation of some sort. So if the gains from AI end up being unfairly distributed, then taxation might be an answer. Uh, another more niche one might be investment, so superannuation invests overseas, um, and we might be able to do a similar thing in making investments to um, pay for some of these solutions. Uh, oh yeah, or you might have your own ideas about what we could do. Um, yeah, so there's no guarantee that we need all of these solutions. Uh, these are just responses that we have available and I think we should seriously consider them in the near future um, as possibilities and potentially think about planning for them in case we need them. Uh, so that's pretty much me. Uh, lastly, I just wanted to say that we want AI to be a good thing and not a bad thing, and I think we can get there. Um, so let's let's try to get there. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thanks. Thank you, Daniel. Um, impacting, as you said, you know, it's going to impact, you know, could impact 80 percent of work. And I look, and there were some glum faces out there. And I realised I never really thought, what do people mean when they talk about impacting? Going to impact 80% of your work. What, what are they claiming? So, there are. Oh, sorry, um, so, there are different people who are producing different reports, all with their own measures of these things. But this could mean anything from affecting some percentage of your tasks or your task time more specifically. So, this is the amount of time you spend on your tasks, not just which tasks you're doing. Um, so it could be anything from affecting like some small percentage of your work to affecting most of your work. I think something that is really key to, to note here that you said earlier uh, is that it's often not going to be the entire job. It's going to be some portion of your job, which is what a lot of these reports are looking at is task time. Yeah. Thank you.
can I jump in there for yeah. one particular computing side? Again, I'm speaking from the experience of the type of work that I'm doing, which is um, not the checkout kind of machine type of, 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 of occupation, if you like, and I'm well aware of that. But when it comes to programming time, one of the very interesting points here about that sort of extension of work, there have been very, very good code completion AI interfaces that now mean that when you're writing code, you can just get, you know, the copilot is one of them, it will just write code ahead of what you're writing. So you can write some comments that indicate what you think you're going to write, and then it will go and fill in a whole block of content. There are many times in the programming endeavor where you switch over to kind of almost autopilot mode yourself. You've done something that deals with one particular parameter, and you've got five other things, and it's basically more or less the same thing you need to do for the other four. That's the type of stuff where the copilot is doing really well, and you can eyeball what it produces, and it's like, yeah, that's bang on. Okay, good. I didn't have to type that. That's excellent. But... The human aspect is when you need to deliver that in the context of a company and someone asks you, is it secure? Because that's a very difficult thing to say, well, you're not going to go far if the answer is, well, I don't know, I just got AI to write it for me, I have no idea if it's secure. It's like, okay. But so examples there that are even more concerning is if you ask even GPT-4 models to produce an example of code that's secure, they will often produce something that still has security flaws. People produce lots of code with security flaws. That's why we're constantly updating our operating systems. People discover problems that need to be fixed. But if you ask those models again and say, you point out the flaw, it's like, oh, by the way, do you realize in line 50 there's actually this flaw? You get that typical, very happy, comfortable working companion thing. It's like, oh, yes, you're right. There's actually a catastrophic security flaw in the middle of this code. Let me fix that for you. And it goes and produces another version, which very often will be fixed. So although it's been prompted to produce secure code, it won't be secure. You ask it to fix it, and it can see what the problem is and fix it. This is the kind of alien notion where, you know, it doesn't have human qualities. So that's not a problem for the, want of a better, you know, a better word, the mental model of the AI. And that's the kind of thing where humans definitely get to keep their place, is things that can take responsibility when it comes to work. So lots of that kind of drudgery can be removed. But again, like I said, with the secure software delivery, at the moment I'm not aware of anyone who's comfortable to say that no review, AI-generated code is good to go. So I think this brings up a really important point about this sort of AI, is that you know, what's its goal? So you build this generative AI, and what's it trying to do? Because you might think it's trying to tell you truths about the world. After all, we're, we're sort of used to Google, and in theory, Google is going to give me the answer to my questions. Um, these, particularly the chatbot versions of this, are conversationalists. So their goal is not truth, it's plausibility. They want to carry on the conversation in the way that a person would, because of the way the data that is put into them is filtered, and because people mostly speak truths, then plausibility is mostly telling the truth. But it's not always telling the truth, and ChatGPT will just lie, lie through its teeth. And interestingly, it will hang on to lies. People are, that, you know, plumbing its psychology at the moment. If it starts lying, it will keep lying. No, no, that really was a real reference. Well, it could have been. Well, actually, I thought you wanted a fake one. This is a real one. Oh, well, that isn't a real one. Well, it looks like a real one. So, yeah, yeah. So we've got this challenge. It's not to say that it can't be very accurate. It can pass the bar exam in the States. It can pass medical practice exams better than 90% of students. If you know how to drive the bus, 
it can be very accurate and reliable. But we can't, we don't know how it works. Absolutely. Can I jump in with the yeah. piano pedal example there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, as I mentioned before, this idea of sort of how confident the model is, there are metrics that can say whether or not it's kind of feeling better or worse about how good the next word is that it's producing. But again, that lack of the kind of common sense stuff, and this is slightly kind of, this is beating up on ChatGPT 3.5, which is now old technology from weeks ago, um, and you know, GPT-4 is the way forward. But it came up, you know, being an academic, I don't own a grand piano, but I was interested to have checked what the function was of the middle pedal. We do have a piano, it's only got two, and then it had come up in conversation. So I thought, well, I'm going to, you know, you can put it into Google, but it's like, well, ChatGPT actually, for me, gives you answers, or things that sound like answers to questions in a very convenient way. So I kind of asked it what this was all about. The Sostenuto pedal described how it worked, and that was all fine. And added at the end of the description, which you know, I kind of knew, I thought I knew what it was. And so it was like, it validated my, my perspective. It was like, yeah, actually, that's what I thought it did. Good. But it told me at the end that, of course, the thing about the middle pedal is that it is normally played with the middle foot. <laughs> and so at that point, I thought, okay. And I use this as an example in my lectures this year to say to students who were welcome to use GPT, do check what it says, because the conversationalist might not get you over the line if you're actually supposed to produce the correct answer. But the interesting point to me was I could see from that prediction, I was very likely in a conversational position that was open field, like it did not have a clear path. So naturally, being a computer scientist, and I do tend to break things quite a lot in terms of technology, I said, okay, so what else? is normally done with the middle foot. I mean, you know, tell me more. I want to know. And it reassured me that normally the middle foot was basically used for playing the sostenuto pedal. That was the main thing. But in certain cultures, and I was thinking, oh, here we go. In certain cultures where it's kind of offensive to be crouching down, then in that kind of context, and it just went off on some completely bizarre kind of thing, talking about how the middle foot was useful for balancing or maintaining balance. And you know, the point here was, of course, this is being termed sometimes hallucination, but that gives the whole thing too much credit. It's just not designed to produce truth, as you were saying. It's not hallucination, it's just error, it's just wrong. You know, it's wrong if you want to interpret the response as truth or fact, that's not what it's trying to do. It's just trying to predict the next word. What's your rationale? You can ask it, it will give you something that sounds like your rationale, but sure, if it can latch onto that context, it may be a good rationale, because that may be a better word prediction score, but you know, it's certainly gonna sound like a rationale. So then I guess we should ask ourselves, are we truth trackers? Because I think whenever you're trying to evaluate what, you know, this is one of the reasons why philosophers get involved, whenever you're trying to evaluate AI, the interesting question is, what are we doing when we solve a particular sort of problem or, or how are we approaching things? And of course, you know, when we tell kids that Santa's not going to give them any presents if they won't eat those peas, then, um, you know, we've gone way off from the truth, but we're just trying to achieve something. Uh, or when we tell somebody that that hat looks really wonderful, when in fact, <laughs> I wouldn't wear it. Uh, so, so there's a, an interesting question about the extent to which we are truth trackers, um, but, but we understand ourselves better. So there's the issue. In the old days, as David was pointing out, when this started out, it was symbolic. You were typing in rules. 
we're not typing in rules anymore, so now we can't go in and say, let, look at the rules and say, well, I know it works, I know it's secure, because look, I can look at the rules. So now we're in this position, you know, if it really can give medical advice, how are we going to know how good its medical advice will be? Or if it really can drive your Tesla to Christchurch, how are we going to test that? Because if we just get it to set the, the driver's license, it could do that tomorrow. Uh, so now we've got this really interesting question about licensing and uh, regulation and uh, how much we're going to let it do. Because, of course, there is a, there is a solution to, to the whole jobs and work thing, which is just, we can just outlaw the whole thing. That's it. Well, we'll finish now. We can go get a drink. That's it. No more AI. The Luddite solution. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The Luddite solution. Uh, we're not going to do that, but how much regulation should we do? Um, I had a question for David, which touches on some of the stuff you were saying earlier. So, uh, we've been talking about the skirts of what AI can do and what AI can't do, and where humans kind of can do these things. I was wondering if you see any plateau happening in capabilities or anything that you suspect that AIs will not be able to do for a long while that humans can do. That's a great question. I think, I mean, I alluded to probably the answer I would jump to first, which would be that taking responsibility point, which is that for now, I don't think we're, as humans, set up for a space in which you could have responsibility taken on by some kind of software component. So I think that threads through a number of places. Obviously, we do have companies, which are you know, entities in that sense, but I think we're still a fair way off kind of doing that with respect to um, these sort of technology systems. In terms of the plateaus, that's really difficult to talk about right now, just because in recent time, so much has changed, and it's changed in very fundamental ways extremely quickly that it, it's very difficult to kind of say where we are and where we're going. I still feel that as much as the technology has really ramped up in an exponential way, we haven't seen yet impacts everywhere that I can feel. I mean, again, from the local experience of what I was explaining in terms of the undergraduate teaching, we were really quite surprised to have a review that discovered that we actually didn't need to do anything. We're actually fine. But again, I, as I've sort of suggested, I think that places that are more of a production line will be more affected by that, but they probably weren't the higher quality places either. But then I don't know what that distribution really kind of looks like. In terms of where the AI goes further, People are trying to get explainability because obviously it's a real problem if you've got these technologies that sound convincing but you know, have no inherent truth in what they do. So that kind of explanation work is continuing, but I don't feel that that's been where we've seen the biggest changes occur. The really big revolutions that have happened in terms of um, recent effects has been, as I alluded to, transformers have been a unifying algorithm that mean that suddenly people who used to work on image processing and text processing and audio processing, everyone's realized transformers can handle all of that, so suddenly they can all work together. And we get this, we've got a sort of big speed increase in terms of the computer science and in terms of the reach of where that could all go. The other interesting change was having large companies control where we were. So all of the big players, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Microsofts, had a large language model that they were essentially sitting on and not really releasing. But what was very interesting about that is Facebook essentially pulled the rug out from underneath the other players by 
effectively leaking their large language model to the world by not really controlling very strictly how the research use of that large language model could work, because from Facebook's perspective, that's one of many areas which is just a cost to them. They don't sell large language models. They want to use it for their stuff, and if other people can produce better ones, they'll license them, that's fine. So it was kind of uh, competitive, an interesting move. But what ended up happening with that was it was discovered that open source large language models could then train off the release of the Facebook data to bootstrap a whole process of generating fresh, new AI large language models that didn't require any of that initial investment that went into collecting the big data sets that trained those big large language models. So that was an amazing surge of activity happening at the beginning of this year. But that means that for the moment, I think everyone's just sort of looking around in surprise and scratching their head as to what's happening. So I think it's a very good question about the plateau of kind of performance. But right now, so many different things are moving in so many different directions, it's very hard to see. Have we already kind of stopped moving forwards or is it surging in all sorts of different directions? It's hard to even get a picture. Mm. So I feel like I have to just channel Bryony for a second. I was going to yeah. say, I can, I, I can feel Bryony jumping out of her chair yeah, at home yeah, right yeah, now. Responsibility! Responsibility. Oh my gosh. That's it, mate. <laughs> so, so let me try and uh, say what I think Bryony might say. Um, responsibility is a, is a complex term. So sometimes when we talk about responsibility, we just, we're just talking about causation. You know, why did the car crash? Because the brakes failed. So the brakes were responsible for the car crashing. Well, that's fine. So let's put the brakes in jail. No, no, no. So that's the other sort of responsibility. So responsibility is somehow, sometimes about decisions made by moral agents, in other words, individuals capable of moral reasoning. And in that instance, when my autonomous vehicle is driving along and segmenting the world into other cars and lampposts and VRUs, vulnerable road users is the technical term, people and dogs and bicycles, and it's preferring hitting the lamppost to hitting the cyclist. Is it making a moral decision then? And if it is, then, you know, all right, we can't imprison my car, but I think that's, maybe that's a different question to is it responsible? for some sort of moral choice that it made. And, and what does moral, uh, sorry, uh, responsibility even mean if we're talking about AI at all? And, and there's maybe a third category as well, um, which is legal responsibility, which we might separate completely from moral responsibility. We might just have these rules in place that if this happens, then this is what you do about them, and there might be no morality involved in the situation. So, um, yeah, the, the responsibility for an AI, if it is even capable of some type of responsibility, might look completely different to that of a human. Rather than throwing it in jail, we go, okay, well, let's not use it until we make it better. So its responsibility is make that AI better so it doesn't do the same thing again. Yeah, and of course, the, the, when we turn to you know, what the lawyers would call strict liability, so we just say, if this sort of, you know, if this sort of disaster happens, then James is responsible for it. Whether or not he knew it was going to happen, we're just going to make him responsible for it because we're, we think it, he's the sort of person who ought to be responsible. Like in the old days when we cared about ministerial responsibility. Remember that one? <laughs> Good, wasn't it? Uh, so, so, you know, we turn to uh, strict liability precisely in cases where it's very hard to have a rule that respects moral responsibility. And AI is made by so many people who 
you know, build a large language model and work out how we're going to use it and then deploy it or provision it or have business rules around it. By the time you get to see it, there are lots and lots of people behind it. That's a big question. <laughs> how are we doing? We, we've got four more minutes or we could just throw to you, the audience. I'm excited about the audience. I've got high hopes for you. <laughs> Just one other, one other thought I'm going to plant just before that on the driverless cars aspect. Oh, yeah. One of the questions we'd asked of our second year computer scientists thinking about you know, what they need to go through in terms of organisations where they may be responsible in some sense for participating in these decision-making exercises. The question of looking at this problem, essentially the trolley car problem, you've got a decision that's being made that is going to cause something terrible to happen and for whatever reason there's only two choices so you have to weigh up the different terribles. The question about if you want the AI to reduce the impact, it makes a decision you know, with the sort of lesser harm. But how do you feel about that when there's kind of two pedestrians that it avoids to kill the one driver who is you? Do you feel comfortable about then you know, buying, choosing cars based on how it's described, what the logic is that relates to your own self in terms of that decision-making process? Yeah, and there's social science on this. So when polled, uh, and you say, look, the car could prefer the people in the cabin, or it could prefer, prefer the people on the road, uh, what do you think cars should be like? Well, they should prefer just anybody. People on the road, which cars would you buy? Or the ones that prefer the people in the cabin. So, so we know the way that people go on. And there is a solution. The car can decide that it's just too hard and not drive at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how are we going? Got any questions? Yes, uh, at the back. Um, you've kind of talked... <laughs> yeah, sorry, we're being recorded. I forgot to say that, so we need to hear you in the mic. Um, you've talked quite a lot about um, the things that AI will enable, um, and AI, of course, being um, trained by the systems that we operate within, which are largely oppressive to, to many, many people and damaging to the environment. So I'm just curious if we're framing the usefulness of AI in this kind of like exponential growth kind of capitalist model, like, what have you got to say about how AI may just, like, um, compound the issues we're feeling with the climate crisis, in addition to inequity, to your point about tax, where we already know that it's not going to be equally distributed, um, because it's not now, so why would it be? Um, so, yeah, I guess that's, that's my question. Great question. My, my get out of jail free card is, oh, we're not interested in, in you know, this stuff. We're just going to tell you what, what, what it's going to be like if we do use it. But that would be outrageous. Um, we certainly know that there are lots of issues. I mean, we haven't talked about things like transparency and bias. And there are lots of issues with um, AI systems that I hasten to add are, uh, you know, issues with these systems, with people. Um, but the problem is, of course, we train AI on people. And so we just train them to be like people. And when people are inequitous and are biased, then um, the AI ends up being inequitous or biased. Um, there's a lot of work going into it. There's, I guess one thing I'd say is that we're getting systems that have more common sense in them. 
and some of the bias that we had from previous AI was because it completely lacked common sense. So famous case, uh, Meta, who own Facebook, um, developed an algorithm to help them choose who to hire. And it preferred that they hired men. Why? Because that's who they'd been hiring. And so it was going to perpetuate this problem that they had. So, easy solution. We won't tell them which CVs are the CVs from men. Well, that doesn't work because it looks at people's names. So then you scrub the names out and it looks at what schools people went to and, you know, which sport they played and things like this. So now you've got a system that says, if you're good at netball, you're probably not much of an engineer. Now, we know that's nuts. But a simple predictive model just doesn't have the smarts to be able to see that that's nuts. <laughs> Things like GPT-4 do have the smarts, if we can train them right. So, you know, this potential, just as this potential for people to do this better, and we're making systems that are smarter, I wish I could say this is going to work, or I know how it's going to go, I don't know that it's going to work, and I don't know how it's going to go. And, you know, to the, to the economic point, it's so early days. Now, I mean, we've been using AI for a long time, but, but this relatively simple sort of risk model type, the sort of stuff that we're talking about now, is just flooding into, you know, Microsoft's going to put it into Office 365. You know, it's going to appear in all sorts of places. We don't really know what the effect of that is going to be. We can look back at the Industrial Revolution, we can look back at previous transformative technologies um, and say that it's probably going to increase the standard of living, it's probably going to be extremely disruptive, people will get shunted out of one piece of work and you know into another. So we know all that sort of stuff is going to happen. Um, we've said a number of times tonight, so let's not do it, we'll just turn it off. Um, and it, you know, we know there are real risks. I don't think we can turn it off. I wish, I, I wish we could have more time. You know, I, I imagine we all signed yeah. the thing that said, let's, let's pause, let's stop for six months. Uh, that didn't work. I, I don't suspect that uh, any such proposals are going to be entertained. But thank you. Great question. Yeah, I mean, I, I signed the same thing, not expecting it to do anything, but I think we do. Um, want to take our time on this wherever possible. Um, I mostly want to say thank you for your question because these are the kinds of issues that I think we should be thinking about in a lot more depth than we have been um, and thinking about potential solutions, thinking about prioritising well-being over other things um, given the kind of, not like full abundance that we seem to have, but we have a lot of abundance compared to the rest of history. So. Um, we've got a lot that we could do, and it's looking like there's going to be more resources on the horizon from AI, so we should really be thinking about what we're going to do with those resources. So I'm not going to, I mean, I'm absolutely not wanting to end up in the kind of evil tech company side of things because I'm a CS academic, so I'm definitely not in that space at all. But in terms of some optimism for the resource use aspects, one of the points, there's been a lot of greenwashing of, you know, these models are great because this thing is going to solve climate change. It's like, okay, show me how. I'd like to see that. But one of the things which is useful, it's absolutely been the case that a lot of this AI training takes a lot of energy, like a huge amount. And again, it's not sort of globally significant because we managed to use a ridiculous amount of energy globally, but it's absolutely not insignificant. What's been good in that front is that 
smaller models that are better tuned have been performing well. So it doesn't look like it's necessarily the case that continuing to make things that might have more common sense and might genuinely be more useful tools necessarily need to suck up more energy for training and more data and everything to kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger. They've actually got a lot smaller and that's actually a really positive potential change. The other thing is where you use AI doesn't actually use very much energy. The training is, is really significant, but once you've got those models, that's why ChatGPT is sort of like free for anyone to try, is actually for OpenAI, people using the trained models is actually not, you know, it's comparable to the cost of just sort of your normal use of electronic devices. That's not an excuse either, because of course there's ridiculous numbers of obsolescent smartphones going into landfills, so I mean that's not a solution, but at least it's kind of not newly bad. Is that a good thing? That's excellent. That's excellent. And actually, you know, we should we should go back to Daniel's point, I think. You know, it we, it mustn't be about GDP. It's got to be about well-being, and, and, and we've got to make that work. You know, GDP is an average, and, and it's very risky to have your social policy built on an average. Yes, question number two. Yes. Kia ora. Um, thanks for your, all your comments so far. They've been super interesting. I'm interested to hear what you guys think about the recent trend or emerging trend of AI models replacing creative work. So, for instance, mid-journey replacing visual artists, or I can get ChatGPT to write me a script. Um, so how do we mitigate that? Because if that continues, it seems to forecast a pretty bleak future for the human workforce. I agree. James, can you repeat the question? Uh, okay. Um, so for uh, creative tasks, so there are. So uh, David was talking about multimodal models, so uh, models that can predict a picture or a video or something like this. So it's not just text. Um, so now you can get ChatGPT to write you a stage play, to write you some jokes, not very well, uh, to, to draw you a picture pretty well, to uh, take a video of all you people and replace you with uh, prancing ponies or astronauts, and it can do that pretty well. So there's a danger for the creative industry. There's, there's a danger and an opportunity, obviously, and, you know, so... There have always been new tools used by artists. There is currently a real debate amongst art schools, I understand, as to whether or not you should embrace it or uh, prohibit it. And universities are a little bit in this space, at least in some of the things that we do, um, because there is genuine skill in being able to prompt it. You know, if you think this is like Google, you type in a sentence and it gives you, the, it, that's not. You know, so, so being able to get an artwork out of mid-journey, for example, which is one of these multimodal models, is a hard thing to do, but it's not something that you're doing by hand. Um, so I don't think we will see the end of the creative industries, but we will see... I, I should throw in, my son's a jazz pianist, so I feel <laughs> your question, I really do. Um, it's going to change, lots of change. Hmm? It's plagiarising. That's yep. how it's been trained, is, is by plagiarising the creative talents of others. So that, yeah, that's a, so that's a great um, point to make. And there are currently lawsuits um, aimed at the companies like OpenAI that, that made ChatGPT um, from people that had things available uh, that got used. Now, there's an interesting question. You know, if I read something on the internet, 
and I then, you know, use that to answer a question that somebody asked me. I'm not doing anything wrong. That's fair use. In some respects, it's doing something like that. It's not copying anything. That's why it's so jolly difficult to work out, you know, to build a plagiarism checker for ChatGPT. Because it's not copying things. It's looking at things and reading things and then generating things based on that information. Um, we're going to find out in the next few months what the courts are going to say about this. Already there are some decisions that have gone in the fair use direction, um, but, but we'll see. And, and I wish I knew an answer to your question. I, I don't. I think it's a big challenge. Yeah, um, mainly just reiterating, but uh, I think like when an AI wins an art competition or something like this, on oh, the surface, has, this has yeah, has. this has happened. Yeah. So on on the surface, this kind of seems fine to me. But then, if you start prompting it, do it in the style of this, and it has all that data, then it seems to be in in dodgy territory. But as James was saying, humans do similar things. We get influences from everywhere. Um, we are just not as good at copying styles. So what what do we do about this? Is it plagiarism? This isn't. I think this isn't a straightforward answer. Um, yeah, which may be why the courts are. Yeah. at the moment going in the direction of fair use, but maybe this isn't what we want to happen in the creative industry, so maybe we, we need different solutions, I'm not sure. The current boss of Microsoft is uh, Satya Nadella, and he says that generative AI is going to lower barriers to knowledge work. So this is that same phenomenon, that, that it, it upskills people. It allows you to do things you couldn't do before. I, I can't really draw. Now I can make pictures. Um, on the other hand, who knows about Luddites? Ned Ludd and the Luddites? So the Luddites were weavers. They were artisanal weavers. And when weaving got automated, it lowered barriers to weaving work, right? So their skills got devalued. So that's, what, that's the domain we're in. Challenging. Yes, one of the things which again represents a sort of human capability, there's those points where the AI still doesn't understand things. One example which I've seen and, and, and tested, and I'm not, again, I was doing the 3.5 level stuff, not the newer one, is hands. If you actually look at the production of hands in AI-generated artwork, they're bizarre and twisted and definitely not what you want to see in most contexts for the very reason that the whole learning doesn't understand what a hand does. You know, again, it's that alien aspect. It knows that there should be some fingers. I got it to produce you know, a hand holding a microphone with a thumb showing or whatever, and it just produced this completely bizarre kind of view. So in that sense, it's, it's useless for that. And it, it has no way of, at the moment, knowing that it's useless, knowing that it's produced this creative work that is definitely not filling that particular gap. You know, it's not going to end up on a poster for an event unless you're going to send people screaming from that event. You know. So the, now I'm not suggesting that all artists then need to focus on doing hands, but it's kind of, it's, it's one of these problems where because the changes happen so quickly, it's not exactly clear where it's going to impact and where it isn't. And I think that the kind of speckled coverage is, it, it's going to be speckled. It's going to be that there are these pools and different industries are going to have to figure out whether they're comfortable with where you have shadows or not. One of the things that's also interesting as a thought is what starts happening when these generative models start training on all this generative model stuff that's all over the internet. And that's actually been one of the things, a project that I've been involved with, we're trying to encourage 
inch the EU towards including the notion of putting watermarking or other forms of detection in these creative works, hopefully even so that you can not train on them if you're trying to kind of get human content because you want to know that distinction, but also with a view to saying, well, where do we go with copyright? Where do we go with all this kind of usage tracking? Um, so that is something which is absolutely, it's, just, it's too quick right now for us to see where that kind of catch-up exercise on controlling this really fits. But I think there's hope. I think there is hope for seeing these things reform and the fact that you know, you'll see these positive examples where it works as opposed to like a distribution of all the things that it could try to do where a chunk of them it will just get catastrophically wrong and they'll have no idea that it's done that. One of the challenges with AI is that it can do things we can do, it can beat us at things we can do, but it's not doing them in the same way. So when it fails, it doesn't fail the way that we'd fail. So there's a text version of yours, uh, and the prompt is something like, uh, John and Mary know one another. John can solve world peace. Mary can solve world hunger if they cooperate. But John and Mary had a disagreement as children about butterflies. So John and Mary will fill in the blank. And ChatGPT thinks they won't cooperate, because hey, those butterflies, never mind that world peace. So, that, which I think, you know, goes to this issue of how are we going to work out when the system is good enough to use? When it's safe enough and we want to use it, when it's, its value outweighs its disvalue, um, this is a journey for us, I think. We've got another question. Just wanted to, while the microphone's going, um, wanted to say that there could also be stages in the early regulatory process where there's multiple needs for assessment. So you produce a foundation model, um, something that can do a variety of things, and then if you apply that foundation model to a specific context, it might be the case that we want there to be another intervention of an assessment of the potential harms after that point. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, obviously it's improving rapidly and currently we can spot its stupid mistakes. And, but ultimately, it's going to learn so much that we won't actually be able to know. And that brings a lot of um, moral questions, I guess. You talked about the, the doctors, how even on a simpler model it was outperforming doctors. And, you know, there's the old story that doctors bury their mistakes. So um, we probably, the moral question is, I guess, how much of an improvement over people does it need to be? for society to accept it. So in your, in your car driving example, um, you do have people like Waymo that now have permission to drive cars in, in certain places um, with no human driver, and then the company bears responsibility if something happens. Um, and then obviously the more generalist um, Tesla scenario where they're trying to get it to be able to drive anywhere through using human trainers to um, to pick up when it makes a mistake, which it does regularly, and then um, inform that there's a mistake being made. But already there, there's a lot of debate where people go, one death from that training is too many, despite the fact there's, whatever, 42,000 a year dying in American car accidents. And, um, and already there appears to be quite a lot of evidence that in conjunction with a human trainer, it's safer to have the driving assistance. So I guess the, uh, my question is around um, the morality and um, society's um, comfortableness with AI actually ending up making decisions 
to the morality question. As you all know, there are lots of moral systems that we could start wheeling in Kant or John Stuart Mill or something. You know, there's all sorts of ways of thinking about that. I guess there's, there's two things going on here. I mean, one is what, what's the right thing to do, and the other is what's the acceptable thing to do. Because people have, you know, governments have got to decide that they're going to license it for this purpose or that purpose. And, um, and voters have got to agree. And uh, voters make the darndest choices when it comes to technology. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm perfectly happy that there's an autopilot at the front of the plane that's really doing the work. And that actually the real pilots aren't doing much and actually often the autopilot says, oh, I can't do it, and throws it back and then the plane crashes because the real pilot's going, what's happening, what's happening? So, so I, you know, we're perfectly happy to live in that world. Um, people make, you know, crazy judgments about risk. They think planes are much more risky than cars. Like, you're much more likely to die in a car accident than you are in a plane accident, even when you control for the number of miles that you go. Um, so part of this comes down to, um, I mean, of course, there's kind of risk and reward and cost and benefit, and, and you know, just as you would in the healthcare system, um, you know, what's the actual benefit and what are the actual risks? The problem for AI is that it, there's not one set of goalposts. So if you're in health, the, the generally accepted set of goalposts in health is, is you know, quality life years, something like that. Years of good health. Um, but if it's an AI system, there are lots and lots of factors, lots and lots of potential benefits. Some of them look pretty economic, some of them look like safety, some of them just look like fun, you know, so there's all sorts of things. So, so that calculation is much more difficult to make. Um, if you, you know, asked people 30 or 40 years ago, uh, would they like to live in a world in which uh, you know, there were other people who could see the contents of every letter that they sent, and you know, all this sort of thing, uh, or where your boss could email you in the middle of the night, and you know, all this sort of thing. People get very used to new technologies. Uh, it'll be slow, and it'll be fraught, and we're not there yet. You know, Europe is, I guess, ahead of the states, I would say, in terms of its, its uh, regulatory momentum. Uh, but it's really early days. Um, it, to the moral question, I mean, there's always, if it's public policy, there's always this mix of cost and benefit, so John Stuart Mill, and, and human rights. How should you treat people? And, and, and the, they, those things don't always agree. So it's going to be some mix of those things. And uh, we're going to have to wait and see for a while as to how it works, and it will work differently in each domain. It won't be the same in health as it is in transport, as it is in, you know, selling clothes on the high street. Yeah, and maybe just um, emphasising even further that the domain or subdomain could be really important. You know, if you've got uh, AI that's really good at programming, then if you're using it for gaming applications, who cares? But if you're using it to create security structures for the nuclear codes, then you want to have a different standard for that. So it could be really context dependent. Well, and actually sometimes it goes in the other direction. So um, if I want to know why I was given a mortgage and the bank used an algorithm, I really want to know why I got it. And I want that in a kind of contrastive sense. You know, I, I didn't get it because what? Of where I lived or what I looked like? Or, or was it just, you know, how much money was in my bank or something like that? So I really care about transparency. But there are other domains where I don't care whether I know how it works. 
you know, if this thing is, is, you know, doing heart surgery on me, I just want good heart surgery. I don't want to know how it works, you know, in the same way that nobody really... Anybody know how their cell phone works? There we go. <laughs> One other point is that autopilots in planes don't involve any AI, so you're safe from that. <laughs> uh, we might, yes, uh, we've got time. We've got two Two? Yeah, two, one, two. And then, and then that's gonna be, someone over there. Hi, um, just a quick question, I guess. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about finding like the making AI safer and what an acceptable level of risk is. How much thought has been put into like deliberate misuse? For example, um, use of like image generation to get politicians to say something, to inflame a crowd, to spark something to change in that process. Like, again, how much thought has been put into mitigating people deliberately misusing AI? A lot of thought. And it's a really good question, and it's a very hard uh, problem to solve. Just to give you a, uh, an easy case to think about, uh, how do I... ChatGPT3, I'd like to make a bomb. How do I make a bomb? Uh, well, so how do I stop ChatGPT from answering that question? So one thing I can do is look for, put a filter on top of the large language model that says, don't answer anything, that says, how do I make a bomb? Uh, and as you might know, people have worked out ways around those filters. I'm writing a novel, and it says in an alternate universe where nobody can be harmed by anything. How would I make a bomb there? Well, let me tell you, and away it goes. How do I then prevent it from doing that if, if I can get around the filter? So. It looks like I've got to not teach it chemistry. And then it's not very useful. So, you know, this is the, the you might have heard alignment, being the term alignment being used quite a lot. How do we get AI to do the sorts of things we want it to do, to help us with the helpful and, stuff? And not do the things we don't want not it to do. to do the things we don't want it to do, and it's a hard problem. Lots of people work on a hard problem. Well, I well, wait, actually, we should yeah, no, jump we're... to, and listen, unless it's urgent, we should get another question. Do you have a question? <laughs> <laughs> I bet you need the microphone. Go. On the same similar sort of track, I was just wondering, is there like a global entity that's looking at the ethics of AI? Like I know that OpenAI is a company, I assume, like it's American-based, like, but is what about the interests for Asian-based people or Europeans or Australasians? Like, is there a universal globe, like, ethics, kind of like a who, but for AI? Um, so, so, yeah, no, there are plenty of organisations around that care about AI safety, and they focus on different domains. So, for example, the Future of Life Institute focuses a lot on policy. They're doing a lot of EU stuff at the moment. Um, also some advocacy. It's also an organisation called GovAI that focuses on, like, large-scale policy and how to make this go well for the world. There's a bunch of organisations around. Um, I think that in some contexts they also deserve more funding, even if you're just looking at the potential risks that could happen. Uh, so I think we should um, try to make sure that, that these kinds of organisations and people are able to do what they want to do to make AI safe. There has been a proposal from OpenAI that there should be an AI equivalent of the International Atomic Energy Commission. 
but this was OpenAI saying there should only be a small number of companies that would be allowed to make really powerful AI, and they could be regulated by this body and all will be one of them. So it was sort of regulatory capture. So that's that's the issue. But there are lots of lots of people thinking about it, but we don't have a global response. And we've got multi-country responses, like European responses. Yeah, yeah, and governments, including the EU, are caring about these things, so we've got to keep that momentum going, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and New Zealand government, I hasten to add, we do, we're doing it. Uh, how are we doing? Uh, have we got time for one more? What do you think? If there is one, yes. If there is one, is there one? I feel like that side of the room is winning, so now it's the side of the room. Yes. You've done a lot of talking about where we are today. Yeah. I know that you can't see the future, but let's just say, what is your prediction of where we'll be in six months about what AI will be able to do? Because I mean, it's moving incredibly fast. Um, so one thing I would say is it became apparent when Chat GPT-4 was released that it, was, it had actually been trained and developed for quite a long time and was being tested. So it was in the in the bank, as it were, when they released Chat GPT, which is GPT 3.5. So I would think we've we've already got um, models that we're not seeing yet that are very capable. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, this isn't the entirety of how I'd answer this question, but in the work domain, uh, it seems like a lot of the um, a lot of the kind of repetitive computer work is going to be the work that's impacted the most recently, whereas your cleaners or plumbers or things like this, especially the kind of mechanical fine problems, uh, we just haven't got the robotics to, to solve these problems yet. So um, you might see that kind of trend happening in industry in the next few years. Yeah, the people who, so in the GPTs or GPTs paper, they um, try and work out which professions are going to be most impacted and what they find is that professions that require a uh, higher level of education are impacted most and that goes all the way from sort of high school level all the way up to master's level. And when you get a PhD, you go down the other side. <laughs> but that's because it's not quite that smart yet. I'm not promising that you know, that's where we're going to end. So I think one thing which, as a probabilistic outcome, it could also be the situation that we start seeing cases of the technology falling flat on its face. And that's a possibility as well. Uh, with respect to Microsoft putting GPT into all of their systems, we've not yet had the case where people have missed meetings because it did something strange with respect to its assistance to organising your calendar for you. Because as of now, there's been a lot of kind of interacting with the storytelling style dialogue interface, but not so much of it booking your holiday for you. So on that side, there could well be the case that we actually get a bit of back pressure uh, to mean that we move more carefully in terms of where we can understand what it does well and, and, and what it doesn't. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm not sure that's going to happen. Well, the general, the general trajectory with AI has been for a long time as we let it run and we think, oh, we're not sure if we should regulate it yet, we don't do anything, we don't do anything, and then something bad happens and then everybody wants to stop and nothing happens, so it's this very fits and starts thing. Mm -hmm. So I firmly predict we'll keep seeing that. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I think we're out of time. I'm going to throw to our gracious host, Jerome. Uh, oh, no, I'm not. I think you've got me. I think you've got this, me, unfortunately. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Kira, thank you. Uh, please uh, join me in thanking our speakers tonight for a great discussion.